Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network, where you'll find today's tennis discussions. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journey. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which could be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey. And our mentors, well, they might provide that roadmap for your journey. For the last five-plus years, I've been blessed to be talking with mentors who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. Who are these mentors you will hear on our Thursday's broadcast? Well, the almighty will in at least once a month. You will continue hearing either Dr. Alan Fox, who we will have on today, or Coach Chuck Reese. Other mentors who you will, you will hear sharing their knowledge on Thursday's broadcast have been Ashley Hobson, Bobby Palis, Dr. Bryce Young, Ed Crash, Johnny Angel, Nick Saviano, Scott Williams, Energy Coach Linda LeClaire, and others. Besides the coaches sharing their knowledge, you may also hear other college or high school tennis coaches or USTA, PTR, USPTA heads, as well as leaders from tennis and racket sports organizations. Because I do believe Dr. King when he said our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, each week you will hear my biased views on North American tennis and life. I would like to thank Yellow Ball CEO J.P. Weber for hosting the program and on our network. And, of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio is you can listen at any time you like to the programs you want to hear. All you have to do is just hit that Yellow Ball logo and uh, listen in. Besides our Thursday conversation, the almighty willing, you will be able to continue reading my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I have previously stated, if you disagree or want to comment, please email me at coachdenise.fhstca at att.net. That's coachdenise dot F-H-S-T-C-A at A-T-T dot net. Who knows? You may read your views in Florida Tennis Magazine or hear them on future broadcasts of Coach Denise Exploring Tennis Places. If someone has taken the last issue of Florida Tennis from your pro shop or you're not a subscriber, you can always read the last issue of the magazine by going to www.floridatennis.com. Or in between issues, you can go to Facebook at FL Tennis uh, to read Jim Marks, mine, and the other writers' articles. We do try to keep you up to date what's going on in between issues, and you can read some of the stuff we try to post in just by going to FL Tennis on Facebook. Well, we should have an interest in, whoa, I see, looks like we have the good doctor uh, on now. Let me uh, check just to see to make sure here. You can hear me. Alan, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Oh, very good, very good. Well, I'm going to, instead of going into my commentary, being Alan Fox is uh, with us now, you could read my commentary I posted uh, uh, this morning. Uh, those of you that suggested that a couple of years ago, I appreciate that, although I fought it for a little while. You talked me into it, and... Uh, it's not so hard. Change does hurt sometimes. <laughs> I do listen. But, Alan, how are you today? Doing fine. I mean, uh, our little town in San Luis, we've been 
spared some of the, you know, disturbances and destruction, luckily. Uh, and so life has been good. I need tennis balls with my wife today. I can't ask for more. No. Anyway, hopefully no. all is well with you, John. All, all is well with us, uh, Bobby and I. Haven't gotten around to him with the tennis balls uh, because of some of the restrictions and me being on the Park and Recreation Board of our local uh, city that we live in. Uh, I don't want to violate any uh, rules if I agree with them or not. <laughs> but uh, until I can do it the way I want to do it and the way I'm used to doing it, uh, we're holding off a little on that there. But uh, that's what my commentary was actually about. I don't know if you've seen it. We were we went up to see the space shuttle uh, this weekend and. Uh, Truthfully, uh, it's been years since we were up there, and and I almost missed it, and that's what my commentary was about today. I hope the USTA, and uh, I hope we don't miss it and wait in too long, and uh, I wish I was smarter and had more answers, but the truth of the matter is every day I have more questions than answers. Anyway, uh, yeah, by the way, it is a, an amazing and sort of exciting thing that private enterprise can produce a rocket <laughs> to get us into orbit, you know, better mm-hmm. than the government, in fact. So it's interesting to see that. Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, surprisingly on the beach there, the people that were yelling and realized that uh, we don't give enough credit sometimes uh to the public, but uh, a lot of people were talking about that as uh, they stopped cheering as the uh, liftoff was successful. And uh, but it took the combination of business uh, people uh, and the government to uh, get it off. And I think uh, it's a danger all organizations, all governments face once they get too big. Uh, uh, ruling from the uh, top down uh, is just usually not successful. Uh, China would probably disagree with me and say it is successful, but uh, uh, no, they're going. To... They're going private enterprise themselves. I mean, they have some sort of a, a combination system where they they claim to be communist, but a lot of their progress is, is letting people uh, be entrepreneurial, letting companies do their their private work. So, uh, yeah, our system is, is actually a great system for making stuff. If you want to produce more goods and services, you know, the, the uh, private enterprise and, and when people are working to produce for themselves – they work a lot harder than they do when they're uh, trying to produce for a government or having a government control it. So our system so far has been good. I, hopefully it will continue to be. You know, you start to get your doubts as you see our cities ripped apart. You start to wonder if the system is going to withstand this sort of stuff. I, I think ultimate, ultimately, I don't believe it will, by the way. Uh, but that's an, that's a, another topic. <laughs> well, I, I admit I wonder uh, more myself, but I guess time will tell. But anyway, we might as well get into our uh, topic, which uh, today uh, is risk to- tolerance and strategy. And, uh, you know, would it work? A few weeks ago, I promised people I would ask you a question because one of my commentaries was about uh, loving uh, to compete and loving to win and hating to lose, Uh, being that uh, I I promised everybody before I got into the uh, topic, I would ask a question of you being your your play uh, as an All-American in the country and then going on the Pro Tour and playing in the Grand Slams and 
experience in Wilmington at all. Uh, for you personally, and I do understand it's different for everybody, um, what did, for you, was loving to competition more, or was it hating to lose that, you know, kept you going? It was more wanting to win. Uh, the, the hating to lose, there I, I would suffer when I lost uh, quite a bit. If I had it to do all over again, by the way, I, I would not have allowed, I would not now allow myself to suffer as much as I did. Uh, it, it was very painful to lose, but that wasn't what drove me. I didn't think about that when I was playing. When I was playing, I just wanted to win. And, and and I enjoyed the winning, uh, so that was my drive. I, I you know I, I mean I guess some people are driven more by the pain of defeat, but that that really didn't enter into my mind that much when I was playing. You know I, okay. I my practices involved just uh, maybe uh, pointing towards some event, but but and and trying to get myself in shape for some tournament that I was going to play. And, and it was all the wins. Uh, but it, it, and, and the wins were not particularly uh, for any uh, gain of some sort. Uh, it was more really for respect. I mean, I, I, I think if I had to analyze what drove me to compete, it was, it was respect. I, I I wanted to be a, a tough competitor, and I wanted to get respect from my compatriots, from the my fellow competitors on the tour. That was probably I, I don't well I, I did like a little public acclaim when I got it. You know I wasn't a great player, so I wasn't getting the acclaim that a the Federers get and so forth. But I got a a bit of it. I like that. But more, more important was was what my fellow competitors thought of me. I mean, I, we, we'll get into the topic. Well, let me ask you one more question that always uh, interested me: Is where you were, like playing a Grand Slam or playing a regular tournament? Were uh-huh. the emotions and the preparation, well, the preparation is naturally uh, different. Uh, you're playing different services, everything. But I sometimes I'll hear a person, well, it was hard for me to get up. This wasn't, you know, an important tournament. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, being that I, I haven't been in your position, I was I always had a hard time analyzing that. Yeah, for me, I, I I I was as driven in all of them. I I don't I don't think there was a a tremendous difference in my mind as to whether it was a slam or it was a you know some other event on the tour. Uh, I I wanted to win just as much in any of them. Uh, I I know some guys would you know take their foot off the gas in the smaller tournaments, uh, but I didn't. That. You know, I, I wasn't a good enough athlete to be able to afford to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Me, it was it was more drive than athletic ability, uh, and so I was a very driven person. So I was driven for. Uh, I, I tried almost as I tried as hard in practice almost as I did in tournaments. <laughs> so it was whatever. I'm, I, my nature is just to. Compete, I guess. Okay, well. I don't okay, know if that well. answers a question for anybody else. You know, for me, I liked them all. I, I, I love tournaments in general. I found that it was always exciting. Like when I would go up to a tournament, the thought in my mind was always, I, I could win this. You know, it was an exciting prospect for me. That whatever event I played, you know, things could go my way and I might win it. So, I was always excited to go into a tournament, no matter what the size of it. Good. Well, let's get you to our You want to talk top. about risk, John? Huh? Yes, I think uh, I think we should talk about risk and strategy. Uh, 
naturally, part of it is the different surfaces and the, uh, you know, that how long your season is going to be and everything. But I think it's an important uh, topic. And and uh, the other question I think would be. Uh, with the new equipment and everything, has it changed today um, than before? And is it the same for male and female? I'm throwing a lot on the plate, I guess. <laughs> that's not, that's yeah. not good. It, Sorry. It, it, it is different. Uh, you know, people uh, differ in their tolerance for risk. I mean, personally, me, uh, I, I don't have high tolerance for risk. Uh, uh, I'm conservative by nature. Uh, and I had to force myself to take uh, chances uh, just because the percentages were, were with someone that took chances. Like in my day, it was serve and volley. And so I, I, I was naturally a baseline. I would have preferred to stay back and kind of grind somebody down. That, that, that was more appealing to my risk tolerance. But uh, I, I found that, that you know, the, the serve and volley was kind of necessary in my day. We had lighter balls, faster courts. Uh, and, and I found when, when these very good players got to the net against me, uh, I didn't like it. I, 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 I felt the percentages were against me trying to pass these guys. So it was better for me. I preferred to be at the net have them try to pass me rather than me have to pass them. Uh, so I, I sort of forced myself to take more risk than was, than was comfortable. Um, but, but today the game uh, is, is uh, more aggressive. I, 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 now it's hard to say that when we were serving in volley and they were short points. But in today's game, I don't think you can get very far unless you have a high tolerance for risk. I mean, the, the, the top players now, they're going to hit the ball very, very hard. And when they have an opening, they're going to have to go for the winner. And so uh, I don't think you, could, you can win uh, today if, if, you're, if you're not tolerant of risk. Okay, the... the that there's too much power in the game. They can hit it too hard. You can't run it down. Uh, and so I, I do feel there's a difference. Even though I was serving in volley, I was sort of conservatively serving in volley, meaning I would try to get a high percentage of first serves in, I'd get into the net quick, and I was a very good deep volleyer. So I, I, would, I wouldn't knock off the first volley, uh, rarely would, but I'd hit it. I'd go deep into maybe the weaker side, and and then I could scramble at the net. And so, it, it, although it was some it, somewhat higher risk than I would like, I would have preferred if everybody would stay back on the baseline. I would have been happy, but uh, they wouldn't. So, uh, <laughs> and, and and as far as the women's game and the men's game. The women's game is tougher mentally even than the men's game, uh, especially for risk, because uh, in the men's game, somewhat, you can, you can run balls down uh, more. Uh, the men actually can cover the court better than the women can. Okay? Uh, and so for the, in, in the women's game, it pays to, to go for the winner as soon as you have a chance to try to push it and get control of the point because uh, there, there's not, they're not as good at covering the court. And so the, the slower your opponent is, the more it pays you to, to, uh, to try to hit winners. Okay? You have more leeway to do that. And by the same token, if you're not all that fast in covering the court, it pays for your opponent to attack, to go for the winner against you. And so the women's game, if, if, if at the top they lose their nerve, if they get nervous, they're in a lot of trouble. More, I mean, the men are in trouble too if they do that, but not quite as much as the women are. 
they they have to be able to pull the trigger quicker and more opportunistically than the men even. You know, as I watch the women, I think to myself, God, it takes a lot of nerve uh, from the women's standpoint. If they get nervous, they're in big trouble, whereas the men, they're sort of in trouble, but not quite as much. Does that make sense? Yes, it it has to do with court coverage and, and speed. You know, the men can cover the court a little bit better, you know, right. and so they can maybe hit another ball or two uh, before pulling the trigger, whereas the women got to pull it right away as quickly as they can. I mean, Sharapova is the best example. I mean, because she doesn't move well, of course, she has to go for the winner quicker. So she she's going to hit harder and take more risk. I mean, uh, the sort of equation is the, the the less able you are to cover the court, you know, with speed, the more you have to hit harder and get control of the point so that they can't get to your legs. So the, the, the faster you are, the, the more you can, uh, you know, play longer points. You don't have to pull the trigger quite as quickly. And, and, of course, this is, we're talking pro level. At the recreational level or the club level, you know, pulling the chair, it, it, you know, generally it's going to pay to make less errors. You don't have to pull the trigger so quickly. It, at the pro right. level is what I'm talking about. That's, right. that's where you have to have high risk tolerance uh, to, to get to the high levels. So... Now, in, in my day, you needed it too, but but you could get pretty darn good being a little bit conservative. You could get pretty darn good. You, you wouldn't be great. You wouldn't be the great players. They had great, high tolerance. I mean, guys like Laver and Emerson and those guys, they, they had as good a risk tolerance as the top players today have. They were quite uh, ready to pull the trigger. <laughs> as soon as they could. Right. Now, when we get into this, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, now the game, you know, when we talk about risk, the, the game is a game of uh, controlled risk. In other words, what you're trying to do in tennis, and, and you don't think about this, but this is part of the game, is to get – uh, as much yardage as you can with the least risk, okay? I mean, what, what, what really good judgment, I, I, just an example uh, from back in the day was Brad Gilbert, who uh, played for me at Pepperdine. Uh, right. and, and Brad, you know, he wrote a book called Winning Ugly. Uh, and there was really nothing ugly about his game, but Brad... Brad seems to beat players that had more weapons than he did. He didn't seem to have, you know, those outstanding weapons that most of the players at his level had. You know, he didn't have a big serve. He had a, he had a pretty good first serve. Second serve was very light. He had quite a good forehand, and the backhand was light. Okay. Uh, he had a good pair of legs. But and, and so I couldn't really see why uh, he was going to get that good. Uh, I, I didn't realize, and, and this is you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago when he was playing for me. Um, but, but he taught me something about, about judgment. What Brad had, you couldn't see it. It was judgment. And, and so he, he would not take any more risk than necessary but he would take just as much the, the maximum uh, uh, that would give him the maximum result. Uh, example, L- let's say you're, you're playing an opponent and your opponent hits a forehand down the line and you get over to it and you have a backhand and now you have sort of an open court, cross court, if you can reach the ball early. You know, you could hit it very hard and close to the line and hit a winner. But your probability of error would be greater. Or, or you could hit it away from the line and take less risk, 
but now the probability of putting it away is less. So somewhere in the middle and, and taking into account how fast your opponent can run and how good your opponent's backhand is. I mean, if they have a great shot on that side, then it pays you to take more risk. Okay, and it's quite a complex calculation. You know, you got to take into account the speed of the court and the wind, and all these things happen to be have to be put into a calculator, and you have to instantaneously come out with the the best shot. You know, how far away from the line, how hard you hit it, uh, you know, how much top spin, and so forth, and. and and if you're a great calculator like Brad Gilbert was, uh, he, he didn't hit it one mile an hour too hard or one mile an hour too soft. And, uh, you know, he didn't hit it two inches closer to the line than he should have. He hit it exactly. His calculation was as good as you could make it. And so each ball that he hit, he, he had unconsciously calculated the odds and, and, and the payoff. And so he's taking less risk and getting more return than maybe an opponent. And he could beat players that could hit every shot better than him. You know, they could have a bigger serve, better forehand, better backhand, and run just as fast and still lose to it because their calculation wasn't as good as his. You know, they might hit it a couple miles an hour too hard for their payoff or a little closer to the line than they should for the payoff that they would get. They would take too much risk, and they'd make a few too many errors, and he'd beat them. And so it, it is the calculation is, is not a conscious thing. You, you don't have time to calculate it, you know, uh, consciously. It, it's sort of a feel, and some people are just better at it. Their little calculator is quicker and more accurate than somebody else. So uh, you can, by the way, teach people the basics. You know, there are some basic strategies you use, uh, and then, but the the fine calculation, you can't teach somebody, okay? You can't teach them to hit it, you know, two inches farther away from the line. I mean, you can teach them that the safe the safest shots tend to be cross-court. That's safe. Mm-hmm. That's consistency. You've got more room, lower net, and you're in a better court position if you hit the ball cross-court. When you, when you hit the ball down the line, that needs to be an aggressive shot. You hit down the line for aggression, and you hit cross-court for uh, consistency uh, in general. Okay, Because when you go down the line, when you hit the ball down the line, uh, your court is open. In other words, if your opponent can get to that ball quickly and hit it sharply cross-court, you can't run fast enough to cover it. Okay, your, your court is open. You've got a long run if you hit the ball down the line. However, hitting down the line uh, is more aggressive. It, it's a shorter distance uh, to hit the ball past your opponent. If the two of you are on the baseline and you hit the ball down the line, It'll get by the opponent in the shortest amount of time because that's the shortest distance to hit the ball past the guy or girl. I use the guy in the generic sense. Okay. So hitting cross court is generally your safe play because to cover your court, you don't even have to go back as far as the center. All right. Is that sort of, reasonably clear um, and maybe I should just uh, go into that briefly and, and that yeah. is wherever the ball is let's say the ball is is on your opponent's forehand side okay your ideal court position is to the right of the midline on your side if the ball is right in the center of the court your your best court coverage position is right in the center all right. If if you hit the ball to your opponent's backhand, then y- your ideal court position is towards the backhand side of the center on your court. Okay. Uh, and so when you hit the ball down the line, 
in order to cover your court, you've got to get to the other side of the midline. Okay, you've got to get to the forehand side of the midline. So you've got a longer run when you hit the ball down the line in order to uh, cover your court properly. And so that, that's the risk. You're willing to risk it if you can uh, get enough payoff with the aggression. So you, get, you give up court position when you hit down the line. Uh, but you gain in terms of aggression. So that's the judgment call. Now, you can understand all that, uh, and, and uh, you know, you can teach a person. A person can get fairly solid on their uh, choice of shot. But the fine, uh, the fine calculation can't really be taught. You can, you can teach the, the, the essentials, the basics, and then the real fine stuff, I don't know what that is. That's, that's inherited, genetic some sort of experience with, you know, some sort of genetic talent like Gilbert had. Does any of that make any sense? I'm not sure it does, but. No, it makes a lot of sense. No. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to describe something. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it would be best if we had a diagram and I could draw it out and you could see it. It's very very clear when you when you look at it on a piece of paper uh maybe verbally it's not you have to sort of uh have tested it yourself and then then you can understand it anyway well Uh, i think that very logical and straightforward and i i think the audience uh will understand that the way you described it to me it makes a lot of sense some people you know, like you said, Brad Gilbert, uh, I'm sure he appreciates what you contributed as a coach, but those some of those senses are from the almighty, and, you know, everybody doesn't have them like he did. Yeah, he was a genius of sorts. And, and here I, I, I coached him, and I watched him play many, many, many matches, and I didn't get it. I didn't understand totally what he was doing. You know, because you, you can't see judgment. I mean, right. maybe you could see really bad judgment. But, you know, you can't tell that, that Brad is 10% smarter on each ball that he hits than his opponent. You know, that you can't see. It's, but, but multiplied over the many shots you hit in a match, uh, it, it comes out in the win-loss uh, column. There you can see it, but you you can't see it happening actually, as as it's happening. Um, what else? I I had something else to say, but I've of course gotten in engrossed in this, and I so I've forgotten what I was going to say. Did did, <laughs> did did you have something that we should throw well, on the table I, here, John? Well, I uh, what I would. Often wondered about, you know, is the strategy that you develop a risk, and does it change with an opponent? I mean, uh, is that part of the strategy that you can have? I mean, you know what your game is, you know what you want to do. Uh, the judgments have been made because of the surface and things that you know about, but you also know about your opponent and strengths and weaknesses. How much of that become part of your strategy, or are you going to just stay with your game plan? Yeah, very good questions. I mean, uh, again, that that would depend on what types of what type of uh, weapons you have. For instance, Mm -hmm. uh, just grossly, if you're thinking strategy. When you go out to play a match grossly, you should probably have in mind, you know, how it is you're going to try to beat this opponent, okay? I mean, the two basic ways to do it are you outsteady them. You know, you hit more balls in the court than they do. You win by attrition in that sense. Or you're trying to attack them, and you're trying to hit winners or force errors you know, through aggression. So it, it, it's going to be one of those two. 
in the broadest sense. And then somewhere in the middle, you adjust for what you can do and what your opponent can do. I mean, me, uh, I didn't have big weapons. So I had to look at my opponent, and Gilbert the same. He didn't have big weapons either. So he had to look at his opponent uh, in terms of what are their weaknesses, what don't they do well. And, and what, you're, what you're also looking for uh, on a gross uh, basis is where you have a, a, an advantage. In other words, what, what can you do better than your opponent does? Which, that, that's an important consideration. In other words, if your backhand is better than your opponent's backhand, once you know that, if, if you can uh, hit it more consistently and harder than your opponent, then what you try to do is you try to get into backhand cross-court rallies, all right, because you have the advantage. And so once, once you find an advantage that you have, then you just play it over and over again. You, know, you keep working to get into backhand cross-court rallies, and your opponent, of course, meanwhile, is going to try to get out of them. I was watching. I was watching Gilbert. Let's see, who was he playing? He was playing. Uh, I forget uh, the the Swedish player that that was the youngest French champion. What was his name? Uh, I don't know if you remember. Uh, he, he was a Swede. I've forgotten. Anyway, uh, Gilbert was playing him in the U.S. Open, and let's just call him the Swedish player because everybody knows his name. But I, 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 I yeah. Willander. Excuse me. He was playing Willander. Right. All right. Willander uh, was slightly over a hill at this point, but he was still quite dangerous. They were, you know, evenly matched, supposedly. Uh, Willander had a weaker four. Brad's forehand was better than Willander's forehand. Uh, Willander's backhand was better than Brad's backhand. Uh, both of them were medium volleyers. Brad was a pretty good volleyer, actually, by the end of his career. And so what, what he started to do was, was to hit his forehand cross-court every time into Willander's forehand. And then if Willander hit it down the line, then Brad would run him. <laughs> he had an open court and run him. And so what, what he wanted was he, he, he'd keep hitting into Willander's forehand until Willander hit a short one. Then Brad would hit it up the line and come in. And, and he was winning doing this. He won the first set. And then Willander realized that ultimately, if he stayed back with Brad, Brad was getting the advantage. He was taking advantage of his forehand, which was, uh, Willander's was too short. Brad was getting in on it. So now Willander starts to come in uh, to compensate. Uh, and so it was an interesting thing to watch two very smart guys adjust their strategy when they see that the other guys uh, got some sort of a, 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 an advantage, okay, which was forehand to forehand, Brad had the edge uh, backed up with a, a, a volley attack. And so now he's got to change it up somehow so that Brad can't do that. And he did that by serving and volleying some uh, and by coming in early himself so that Brad couldn't just, trade until he got a short forehand and then hit it up the line and come in. And so uh, the, the smart players, Willander, who was, you know, as smart as Brad, almost, not quite. I don't know that anyone that I've ever seen uh, were quite as clever as Brad, actually. Did more with less than Brad did. Uh, but Willander was pretty smart. Brad got him eventually because they were about even when, when Willander changed it up, but he was already behind by a set. And so by the time he figured out, you know, a, a, a strategy that evened it out, it was too late. They played even. And then since Brad was already ahead, he, he eventually won, I think in four sets. So, uh, you know, intelligent players are, are very, very aware of, of, of what's going on out there as to whether the strategy they have is a winning one or not. And, and if it isn't, then they change it up looking for some, uh, some soft spot 
in their opponent's game. You can usually find one, by the way, okay, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're alert. Like, like when you're behind in a match, I mean, the first thing you want to know, like let's say you're down 4-1 in the first set. The first thing you have to ask yourself is, how am I losing the points? What is happening here that I'm losing the points? Okay. Now, a lot of players don't do anything about it. They don't think like that. You know, yeah. Someone like Brad did. You know, why am I losing the points? Am I making too many errors? Is he hitting too many winners? Does he have some technical advantage? What, what is it? Why, why am I down? <laughs> and there is an answer always. You know, uh, at, at the recreational level, it's usually going to be you're making too many mistakes. That's, that's the answer. And that's why you're down. And so if that's the case, then you stay away from the lines a bit and you give the ball a little more air and, and you see what your opponent does about it, okay? You don't just keep doing the same thing, all right? If, if you're down, you change things. You know, if you're up, then you keep doing what you're doing. Sort of, sort of a simple-minded uh, thought. Uh, if your opponent is, is hurting you too much, you know, and you're off balance and your opponent's attacking you, uh, and and he's, he or she getting the edge on you by hitting too many good shots, th- then you have to judge in your mind, can this person keep that up? Okay. Is this, are they playing above their normal level, or is this, you know, is this how they play? If that's the case, then you have to raise the gain on your uh, end. You have to hit harder or attack more take more risks so that you they can't set up and keep hitting and blowing through you so it 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 will depend on why you're losing the points as to what your response should be Uh, but you're always looking for some matchup some relative advantage you can find where you you can do something uh, better than they can all right Anyway, that, th- th- those are sort of the basic strategy things. Uh, uh-huh. and, and by the way, the, one other thought, uh, and, and that is what you try to do also is you try to force your opponent uh, to take more risk, to take more chances, okay? You don't want them – what you don't want to do is hit a good shot, you know, take a risk, Get hard and close to the line and let your opponent escape with a low-risk response. Example, you hit a very, very hard cross court into your opponent's backhand, and your opponent is running out towards the, the doubles alley. Okay? Now, what, you've taken a risk. You've hit, by risk, when you hit the ball hard and you hit the ball close to the line, that's a risky thing to do. Okay, and if you do that a lot, you hit a lot of balls hard and close to the line, and your opponent hits the ball back high and soft and doesn't take any risk, and and they can run your balls down, you're going to lose, okay, because you're taking more risk than your opponent, but you're not getting any payment for it, okay? If you start taking higher risk, then you've got to shorten the point. Then the point has to end sooner. And so, like when you hit a very hard ball near the line and your opponent is stretched out, their smartest response is to go back high, you know, maybe seven or eight feet over the net and and give themselves time to recover and not take much risk, okay? So you don't want to let them get away with that. What you want to do when you hit that shot is you want to move forward into the net and, and, and pick it off in the air so that they can't get away with that. Because which, even if you lose that point, okay, maybe your volley's not that good, but you, you, you want to give them some sort of a threat so that when you hit the ball wide and hard and they're re- running, they have to hit a hard lower shot uh, as a response, which is right. more risky for them. Okay, you want right. to force them 
to take a risk rather than let them get away with a high easy one, okay, where they don't take a risk. And, and the same thing goes for serving. For instance, and, and we're talking maybe slightly higher level, but it pays to mix serve and volley. Uh, even if you're a baseliner, it pays to mix in some serve and volley. And why? Because the return, if you stay back on your serve and you hit a good serve, your opponent doesn't have to do that much. Just, uh, just go back higher. Just try to get the ball back deep. You don't have to take terrible risk with it. Uh, just hit it back deep. Well, as a server, you don't want to let them get away with that. You, you want to force them to hit a harder, lower return, which they'll miss more. And, and by serving and volleying occasionally, you, you put the, the threat into your opponent's mind that if he just hits the ball back soft and high, you may be at the net. And, and so they, they become hesitant to do that. They start having to hit the return harder, and then they're going to miss more of them. So part, part of the uh, game, part of the uh, strategy in, in, in uh, increasing your percentages is to make your opponent uh, take more risk than they want, okay, to force them to take risks. And, and make mistakes. Right. Let me, uh, I think uh, you've covered that pretty good. Let me get into selfishly because I'm always in coaching and team coaching. And one of the things that I've always, uh, you know, struggled, did I do the right thing or not? And I've, I've actually, unfortunately, today it's hard to follow TV and everything, the college teams and uh, play you have to be at it. But I've often tried to evaluate, is there a, a like a theme that most of the players play the same way or are they all uh, looking and you're looking at five different players playing complete different games? As a coach, uh Trying to get somebody to change their game, you know, forgetting about when is the time to do it and everything, there's a proper time. But uh-huh. when do you sit there and, you know, trying to do You don't want to take their confidence away from what they're playing. You haven't uh-huh. sold on the idea of what you want. Do you keep that up and try to change it? How do you approach that? Or do you let five different people play five different ways? Well, they're all going to play a bit differently based on, you know, what uh, talents they have mentally and physically. Uh, But as a coach, you're trying to figure out what are they capable of? Uh, And and that's going to depend somewhat on their mentality and somewhat on their physical ability. I'll give you an example. For instance, uh, this was my er- one of my early years coaching, maybe my second or third year. I had brought in a number of young players th- that were not that highly ranked, and I needed. We, we were competing against the-, the best teams in the country. This was when I was coaching Pepperdine uh, against UCLA and SC and Stanford. So our-, our guys had to move up somehow, and so I would look at them and try to figure out what they could do and what they couldn't. Now, uh, I had one guy, he had, uh, he sort of played uh, a a scattered game. He didn't serve in volley all the time, but he did some. Or he he would stay back and hit and sometimes come in, sometimes stay back. It it would sort of depend on how the point was going. I could see that he, he had two things you know, that, that that had to be taken into account with his game. One was he had a weak forehand, okay? Just he was afraid of it. It was weak, basically. So if he, if he stayed back, and, and the other problem he had was he, he got nervous. He tended to be sort of hyper and nervous. And so I watched his game, and I said to myself, if if this gentleman stays back and tries to learn to to beat guys on the baseline, to grinding them down, 
it's never going to work. It's never going to work. Even if he improves his forehand, his, his mentality is nervous. So he can't hit 20 balls on a big point off the ground. He's going to choke. So he can't afford to do that. So what, what he had to do was learn to serve and volley and, and spend a lot of time at the net and try to get to the net sooner rather than later. And so uh, this guy got it – it, 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 it was a long term. You also have to, as a coach, convince the guy that this is the best way for him to go long term. And then – what you do is, is in practice, you work on giving him tools. This may involve some changes, uh, you know, and, and when you change anything, they're going to be worse for a while. So they have to have a long-term view and, and buy it that, you know, we may be talking three months, six months, maybe a couple of years down the road, and, and, but they have to believe that this is their maximum uh, their maximum game and, and to work on it. So this gentleman spent a tremendous amount of time at the net, okay, and he got darn good at it. And so he ended up serving and volleying all the time. He had quite a good kick serve, a little bit, you know, like Ed Berg or one of those guys, but not as good, but the same idea, a very good spin serve, and he was pretty quick. He was quick. Uh, his forehand wasn't very good. He would... Like on the guy's second serve, he'd just chip it down the line and come in. Okay, came in on the other guy's second serve quite often. And he got ranked as high as five amongst the college tennis players. You know, so he became an All-American. And he went out on the pro tour for a while, for a while. And so those were the kinds of things you take into account. You know, what long-term this person's going to be able to do, you know, uh, and, and it included the mental and the physical. Uh, I had another, uh, another guy on my team, just as an example, was Marty Lorando, a Canadian. He was a walk-on. Uh, he wasn't good enough that I could offer him a scholarship, but he could afford to come. Uh, he walked on, he, he redshirted in his first year and, with Marty, he had a, a good backhand, not much of a forehand, a pretty good serve, and no volley at all. And, and so he, he, he really had no weapons. And so he was going to have to develop them from scratch. And, and this guy, Marty, had one thing that, that people don't realize is a talent. He didn't have physical talent that you could see but he had the talent for work and he had talent for a long-term view he, he he could understand everything he's a very smart guy and he could understand what he had to do and why and so for the first year or two he just developed his forehand and and worked on his volley which was non-existent at first and he gradually Worked his way up. He, he was at Pepperdine five years, okay, because of redshirting the first year. By the end of it, he had become a serve volleyer. He had worked on his volley, and so he had uh, tools uh, to attack at the net. And so Marty started, did the same thing as that other gentleman, uh, where he would come in on the other guy's second serve quite a bit. Uh, Marty would get nervous when he was ahead, like he'd get 30-40, on the other guy's serve, and he'd get nervous and maybe miss the return. But what Marty was really good at was now it's a deuce, and he wouldn't get discouraged. Now he'd try to get another ad. Uh, and eventually, you know, he, he might miss a couple times on ad, but he'd give himself so many opportunities that eventually he'd come through. Okay? And so Marty became an All-American also. He went on the pro tour. He got ranked among the top 100. Uh, he got to the uh, round of 16 at, at uh, the U.S. Open, and he was the Canadian Davis Cup captain for the last, like, 12 years. He's, he's not doing it. He, he was coaching Shapovalov uh, when, when Shapovalov turned pro, when he beat uh, Nadal at the 
in that in, in the Canadian Championship. That Marty was his coach. So Marty, no. uh, and now he's one of the you know uh, coaches of the uh, up and coming players from Canada. Uh, so it, it, you know it sort of depends. I mean, for for a person to make long term changes, they've got to be able to sort of resist frustration as they as they're working on a new skill. It doesn't come right away. It, it doesn't come in a month either. It comes in six months, okay? And before you use it in tournaments, you've got to develop it in practice. Like when players tell, uh, when coaches tell their player, well, you've got to come to net more. Well, the first thing they have to do if they're going to be coming to net more is they need to volley well. And so they need to, instead of like coming in when they're uncomfortable in a tournament, they need to spend some months practicing it and doing it over and over again in practice until they get good at it. And then in the tournament, they can come in more. Okay, so if there's some, somewhere you want your game to go, you, 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 you have to be willing to spend months and months uh, of frustrating practice learning how to do it well. Some people can do that, some people can't. Marty was very talented that way more so than maybe any other player I'd ever met. He could spend six months working on one shot and, until he got it. And then he'd go to the next one, and then another six months. Okay. But most people don't have that far-sighted vision. Uh, so that's a talent. That's a talent. You know, some people have great people physical talent. That. Yeah, and, yeah, and other people have the talent for work and, and, and you know? tolerance for frustration. You know, Marty could take it. He was tough. So, Alan, uh, did you hear that noise, Coach? What was that? You, no, I, there's never enough time when uh, we're on there. Uh, we're down to a minute and a half now. Would you uh, like to just tell the audience where, how to get your books, uh, how to use your services, and uh, I thank you so much for uh, another great hour. Wow. But uh, well, you uh, have about a minute left. Well, let, let me start self-promoting then. Uh, you know, all this, uh, the things we talked about in terms of strategy, where to hit the ball, and attacking your opponent's game and looking for weaknesses, I, I wrote a book on that called Think to Win. Uh, Harper Collins is the publisher, and uh, Tennis Warehouse covers carries it, and you can probably get it uh, on Amazon. Uh, as far as the mental game is concerned, uh, I've I put together basically everything that I've learned over the 40 years of coaching uh, and, and consulting in my last book called Tennis, Winning the Mental Match, which is available on Kindle uh, and a tennis warehouse and probably on Amazon as well. Uh, but, uh, and, and as for consulting, I do consult with players on the mental game or strategy or whatever they, whatever they may need. And uh, they can get to that uh, uh, on my website at allenfoxtennis.com. All one word, A-L-L-E-N, foxtennis.com and uh, it's got a place there for uh, consulting where you can track me down uh, and, and, and that, those are all the wares I have to sell uh, John <laughs> well at the I moment. appreciate it those of you that haven't read any of uh, Dr. Fox's books shame on you and you have two chance to get two of them now so uh, I'm not sure in mine uh, truthfully, uh, <laughs> but uh, I uh, I enjoy them, and they stay in my bookcase. Uh, after we had the hurricane, I actually started uh, documenting who I lend books to. <laughs> I lost too many. Yeah, smart. But thank smart. you very much, and just uh, I'd like to thank you as an audience. I will talk to you again in two weeks, and we're going to have Ed Crass on. Uh, coaches uh, does what I think is important uh, one-on-one -on -one, uh, 
doubles, and uh, I used to take my high school team to that whenever I could. Have a blessed week. Tell your friends, and I look forward to talking with you the next time. Bye now. Bye, John.